0: with them, and that's really been important to us, because you see, for over 20 years, my parents lived in Hawaii, so during uh, a couple of years, about three or four years in college, and then the first 17, 18 years of marriage... While they lived in Hawaii, I didn't get to see them very often. Uh, Maybe on average, every other year or so, we managed to get over there and to say, hey, or they were able to come over to Jacksonville. And so when they made the decision about three years ago to move to Jacksonville, I was thrilled. It was an answer to prayer, and I was excited about the opportunity to get to know them better because I know that my time with them is going to be a bit limited. My dad just turned 80 years old this year, and who knows what's going to happen. He's healthy, and he's great, and I would love to be in the condition he's in, the shape he's in at that age, but I just, I don't know, so I want to make the most of it. So Tuesdays, I have this ritual, lunch with my parents. And one of the things that's been really funny about getting this extended time with my parents as an adult with this 20-year gap and separation and getting this time with them is I'm realizing how much I'm like them or how much they're like me. I don't know what's the right way to say that, but uh, I, uh, my dad and I, we're, were a lot alike. I, I, uh, little, little things that we do just... Uh, So the way he thinks, we laugh at the same types of jokes and funny things. Uh, We have little quirky things that we do that just are random and just for our own entertainment. Even if no one else laughs, we do it anyway. I remember once we were just kind of together out and there was this little idol that was there with this big face on it and he just decides to stick his finger up the nose of it and he thought that was hilarious. I'm like, that's what I would do. That's great. And and, uh, I have this little obsessiveness that my mom has as well, that she can be kind of certain things, that she, and I, I have that. I'm like, at times, I'm just, I, it has to be right, and, and uh, my kids and my wife have seen some of that too, and for a number of years, whenever I get frustrated, I have this little thing I do where I'm like, ah, uh, ach- you know, and my kids just started doing, like, uh oh, achat. And, and then they saw my parents, and then they realized that my dad's like, a oh, achat. And I'm like, that's where I got it from, Dad, that's you. And I'm like, so yeah. So I'm a lot like my kids. There's no doubt that I am my parents' son. I know where I come from. And that idea is going to be what kind of permeates this morning. This summer, our focus as a church is on teaching about Jesus. And I know... That should be what we do every week. That is what we do every week. And I'm like, yeah, we do, uh, sometimes a bit more indirectly. But yes, our goal as a church is to make Jesus front and center. But typically, if we are to be honest about it, not just our church, but a number of other churches do this as well. When most churches think about and talk about Jesus, what we're really teaching is what we think What we believe Jesus wants us to do, to go and make disciples, to share the gospel, to live in a way that honors and pleases him, and quote, unquote, and this is what it looks like, dot, dot, dot. And when we do that, sometimes what can get missed is that we, the realization, the understanding that we have been created first and foremost for relationship with him. As in relationship, for those of us who have, and we all have relationships, whether it's with our parents, our kids, our spouses, our friends, whoever it is, but in the context of meaningful relationships, what we know about relationships is the most important thing is not what we do for one another, but how we know one another, and that knowing is what drives doing. So that brings us back to this summer. What we're going to be doing this summer is we're going to go through three series that focuses on knowing Jesus better. And the intention of these series, and I want to be clear up front, is not to give you action steps necessary on what you're supposed to do so you can live and be more like Christ. We've done that often in this series, and some of that may come out in what is being taught But the difference we want to establish this summer is to have that knowing Jesus drive the doing. And so the doing may look very different for the different people in our church because our central focus is not giving you a clear action step that we're all to take corporately, but a knowing and that corporate knowing to drive some of the doing in our lives. So last week we focused on the Gospel of John. And what John wanted us to know about Jesus, to be able to see Jesus as the Word. And the reason why this is important is because most people don't. Most people, even in John's day, and his was the last gospel written... We're seeing Jesus, and we see Jesus, and understand Jesus first and foremost as a person in our relationship, to understand him as savior, miracle worker, healer, and and maybe sometimes bestie. And so when John is presenting Jesus as the word, he's not talking about Jesus the word. Jesus the word is unstoppable, immovable, immutable reality. And so practically what that means is John wants us to understand That, as much as God wants a relationship with us, that relationship isn't built around Jesus adjusting to us and fulfilling all of our needs and wants, and and where we're the center of the universe. We adjust to Him. Jesus does not exist to accommodate us, Jesus does not exist to make us happy. In fact, it's the complete opposite. Jesus is Lord. He is the master, and we are the servants, and as servants, our goal is to make him happy and to please him. Jesus' word become flesh, the God of the universe in human form. And John says, don't forget that aspect of him. And, this is, and that's where we were last week. And this week, we're going to be heading in a different direction. This week, I want to share with you another side of Jesus, and that's what this series is going to be on, the personhood, the uniqueness of, of Jesus, and what he says about himself and what he reveals about himself. So earlier, I shared with you about my parents and that I, spending time with my parents and seeing how many ways I'm like them, I know where I came from. And I can't tell you how comforting it is to know where I came from. What Jesus did too. Jesus knew where he came from. And as John shared, John shares that Jesus knew that he was there in the very beginning. Before anything was created, before anything was even an idea with creation, Jesus was there. Jesus is in the beginning, Jesus is God, Jesus is word become flesh. But. Luke shares another perspective, and Luke shares that Jesus is also the son of Mary, the virgin Mary. And this is important. So we're going to take a, I was going to say quick, but it's not so quick, but important detour. So last week, we were in the book of John, and this week, we're going to park out a little bit in the gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26 Uh, The author shares this passage. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. So... Before I dive in any further in this passage, I forgot to mention, this is a Q&A series as well. And for those of you, most of you know what Q&A is. It's just during this time, if there are any co- questions or comments that you have related to what is shared, I want you to fire them up and we'll take some time afterwards to tackle them. And the reason why is because if our focus is on knowing, then we want to know and learn together as a community. And that's one of the things I love about our church is being able to do That. So awaken QA at gmail.com, just fire a text and we'll tackle that with some time at the end. So, anyway, so here's this passage talking about Mary engaged to be married to a man named Joseph who was a descendant of King David. So, God sends an angel to approach Mary and he says to her, Don't be frightened, Mary, the angel told her, for God has decided to bless you. You will become pregnant and have a son. And you are to name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can I have a baby? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will Come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby born to you will be holy, and he was call, and he will be called the Son of God. That's really cool. That's the PG version of the Bible, right? The angel's kind of like, "All right, this is still a really young lady here, so let's kind of talk in a way that's clear but still a bit mysterious." And you know, it's really interesting. When we talk about this idea of the virgin birth. Many of us, and many Christians, even uh, don't think too much about it. We don't think about The idea of debating the virgin birth. For us, debating the virgin birth and whether it was actual and literal is kind of like debating whether or not Adam had a belly button. It's just kind of like interesting and maybe even a little bit important, but not a hill to die on. After all, if the virgin birth didn't literally happen, how would that really change our faith? And my response would be, actually, it would change our faith significantly and in a number of different ways. So the virgin birth is Jesus's street cred. Did I use that right, Richard Dubay, Just to, <laughs> awesome, just want to check. So the virgin birth is Jesus's street cred. It, in that sense, it gives legitimacy to Jesus's life and to his claims. And so when people in his time ask in their own way to Jesus, like, who's your daddy? You know, Jesus would be like, it's not Joseph, yo, you know, and he'd be like, it's the Holy Spirit and uh, Aramaic slang. So anyway, I'm sorry, I'll stop because that's just not me and I'm not cool. So anyway, so we're taking this little detour into the virgin birth because it's important for you to understand three truths that kind of surround what the virgin birth does In our theology and our understanding of Jesus. First, Jesus being born of a virgin fulfills prophecy, which for us might not be so important that, you know, 20,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, something was written about a guy who would come, you know, 2,000 years ago, and that's just not, but to the, the world into which Jesus came, that was vitally important. It was evidence to the Jewish people that this is the Messiah, the one that was seen, you know, that was prophesied of has now come and fulfilled reality. Uh, Second, being born of the Holy Spirit with the Holy Spirit as conceiver means that God is Jesus's father. Again, culturally, that may not seem like a big deal to us because some of us for most of us, it's like who our father is doesn't really determine our destiny, but it was not the same way in Jesus' day. So if you grew up in a family where your dad was a tailor, that means your family is a family of tailors, and that was the family business, and that's typically what you would do, especially if you were the oldest son. In Jesus' day, if your dad's a farmer, then your family is a family of farmers. It's a part of defining what your family is all about. And so when God is your father, what is your family business? Your family business is doing the work of the Lord. And Jesus understood that. Luke goes on to tell this story of how when Jesus was 12 years old, he got separated from his family and lost for three days. His parents freaked out because any parent who loses their kid for three days will freak out. And when they found him, Jesus' response in the temple His response was, and he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? So even at 12 years old, Jesus understood that my father's business is not Joseph's father being a carpenter. My father's business is doing the work of the Lord. So even from a young age, Jesus knew what his father's business was. That's two. The third reason why this little detour is important to understand the virgin birth and how it relates to us and our salvation and how we know Jesus is uh, and why it's a necessary part of God's story is, uh... actually, I'm gonna back up a little bit I'm gonna ask y'all a trivia question. And uh, there, are a lot of, there are a number of moms in this room, so you guys should be able to get this right. But even if you're not a mom and you just happen to know stuff about pregnancy, here it goes. At what point in a normal pregnancy does the mother's blood mix with the baby's blood, the fetus? I know Marie's in here, and she will absolutely know this, but, you know, we won't ask Marie to brown nose. Just kidding. So uh, does anybody know out of curiosity? Never. Never. So at what point, and if you the course of a normal pregnancy... Does the mother's blood mix with the baby's, the fetus's blood? The answer is never because of the placenta. I'm I'm sure there's much more detail, and I'm just a guy who doesn't know too much about pregnancy, but I know that part of it. And I think that's kind of cool. And here's here's why this is important and why it's not just an interesting trivia piece. So blood is the scarlet thread that runs through the Scriptures from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. And the significance of blood is is huge. In the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 9 Uh, What it says is, in fact, we can say that according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified by sprinkling with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In the book of Mark. He also makes it clear that it is Jesus' blood that establishes the new covenant between God and his people. He says in verse 24, Matthew 14, 24, and he said to them, this is my blood poured out for many, sealing the covenants between God and his people. So Jesus, savior of the world, the unblemished lamb of God, Jesus needed to be without sin. Any sin, even original sin, Sin nature, and most of us wouldn't even think too much about the mechanics of how that's supposed to work, but God does. And Jesus' claim as Redeemer and Messiah would be empty if his life was tainted by sin. We understand that. The reason why Jesus' sacrifice is legit and effectual for us all is because he was sinless. The virgin birth declares that with the Holy Spirit as the Father and the mother's blood never mixing with the baby, that Jesus came into the world untainted by sin, and having lived a sinless life, Jesus was, is the unblemished lamb of God. That's pretty cool. It doesn't mean Mary didn't contribute anything. If you know anything about Judaism, how do you become a natural-born Jew in Judaism? Well, if you're born to a Jewish mother. Pretty cool. All right, so enough detours. Understanding the virgin birth is uh, relevant this morning, because I want you to understand this idea. Jesus always knew. Jesus knew he was legit, but he was often seen by others who knew him as being illegitimate. Jesus knew he was legit, but he was often seen by others who knew him as being illegitimate. You know, I know most of us here the... I believe, I have to believe that for most of us here, the reason why we have a relationship with Jesus isn't because of what we're going to get out of him. None of us would ever say that. and Hopefully, none of us even think that, but that can sometimes be the expression of our relationship with God. That makes sense. That for some of us, we're, we're in our relationship with God, if we're be perfectly honest, and we'll say, you know, my relationship with God is strongest when I am most in need because that's when I tend to seek him most because I'm asking him to do something for me. And I'm hoping that even though that's an essential part of our relationship with him, that isn't the main reason why we are in relationship with him. But for those of you who, for whom that is kind of true, then John, sharing Jesus being the word, should hopefully shift our thinking and realize, yeah, Jesus is not here to accommodate us. We are here to accommodate and worship and praise him. But Luke comes at it from a different perspective. Luke comes from a perspective that says, you know, there are some who have a hard time relating to Jesus, of believing that he can understand where I am and how I'm struggling, where I'm coming from. I know I've felt that way. So as a younger Christian, and even sometimes today I've I've struggled, and I've shared this before, so it shouldn't be anything new to you been part of the church for a while i struggled with depression I've struggled with suicidal thoughts and and for me when I was a young Christian I often went to God and I'm like God how can you understand what I'm going through I'm praying to you but Jesus you've never been suicidal I mean I can't imagine a son of God wanting to kill himself that's and so how can you relate how can you care for me if you don't know and can't get what I'm going through and then I remember God speaking to me and just you know I may not know what it is, and this is again my little private conversation, dialogue in my head, however God speaks to me. Just like, you know, I may not know what it's like to be suicidal, but I do know what it's like to voluntarily walk to my own death. I'm like, ah, oh, okay. Well maybe you can get that part of me too, then. What about depression? I just like, yeah, I was there in the garden. Struggle with that too. And to realize that sometimes we can have this habit of, of putting, of setting God aside and saying that, you know, maybe what I'm going through is difficult. Um, for me to turn to God because I feel like God can't relate to where I am. And to realize that in the story, in the gospel, and to understand that Jesus' word become flesh means he knows what it's like to be joy-filled, to be happy, to be ecstatic, and he also knows what it's like to be hurt, to feel betrayed, to be violated, to be abused, and to feel like I don't belong. So I don't wanna turn this into a counseling session. I shared a few weeks ago about what it's like to be Chinese and feel like born in this country and to feel like I don't belong anywhere. I'm not American, I'm not Chinese. And I also shared that that's I felt that my wife and I even felt that as, as pastor and pastor's wife and as a Christian, I've always felt like, man, I, I, I feel weird because sometimes I ask questions that just don't seem to bother anyone else, but bothers me. And as a pastor, be able to think in different ways and maybe even look sometimes a little bit different and feel like in our Great Commission movement, that yeah, there just isn't anyone like me, isn't anyone like us? And and so we kind of feel alone. And I'm sharing that not just to, not for pity or anything, just to realize that this has been a recurring theme in my life, this feeling like I just don't belong. And I what I try to do is I try and adjust my. Myself and change myself to fit in to whatever context I happen to be in and end up being pretty good at it. But that's kind of like as I go before God in my honest moments like, Lord, this is tough. And to realize that and to find the relief and joy and comfort of, of realizing that Jesus can relate to what it feels like to have to fit in and to know what it, it's like to be seen as illegitimate and uh, to be able to go through this idea that when Jesus, you know, when, uh, and maybe this will help understand how Jesus can relate to that. So when Jesus, if you imagine him as a kid playing with other kids his age, and they're looking at Jesus and saying, oh, hey, how, how old are you, Jesus? You're t- wait a second, weren't your parents married? And wait, you know, and to say that's, there's something that's not right the math doesn't add up, and, and uh, in, in Mark 6, uh, the writer shares this really interesting passage when he goes to his hometown, the city of Nazareth, and Jesus is there, and he's ministering to him, and they're like, wow, who is this guy? The words he's sharing is so wise and impactful. Wait a second. That's, that's Jesus, and, and here's what it shares in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Is that not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon are not And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. You ever read that passage and wondered, what is it about knowing who he is that was so offensive? It's because earlier in that passage, it gives you a clue. They call him the son of Mary. I just told you earlier how important it is that what defines who you are is who your father is. Because your father defines your family and your family's business and what you're all about. And the fact that he was called the son of Mary means everyone there just knew that you're not the son of David. You're a legitimate kid. In John chapter 8, Jesus also shares about, and the context is important, he's sharing about how he's bearing witness to himself. And then there's this strange question that maybe some of us ran by that he's bearing witness about himself. Someone from the crowd shouts out, where is your father? That's a loaded question. Ouch, that hurts. And even later on, someone in the crowd shares, our ancestry isn't what's in question. Ouch. We can go around and round. There's nothing definitive in here. I'm just simply sharing, man, sometimes none of us can really know exactly what it was like to be Jesus living in that time frame. And I don't want to interpose my own thoughts and ideas. I'm simply saying that, you know, I get comforted knowing that Jesus knew what it, was, what it felt like to be seen as out of place and illegitimate in some way, shape, or form. And that knowledge, right, the idea that even though Jesus knew he was legit, he was seen by people he knew as being illegitimate. The point I want to make is that Jesus, knowing he is the word, become flesh, built a bridge between himself, between God and us. And it's not that bridge that was built was not simply a spiritual bridge but even an emotional one as well. And for those of you who struggle with feeling like, can God relate to me? Can God understand the things I wrestle with, the emotions that I feel and the struggles I have? The answer is yes, absolutely he can. Jesus can absolutely relate to where you are and know you will never be alone when you have to go through it. so in my days as a counselor um, one of the one of the challenges of being a counselor especially when i was young i was 20 25 when i was practicing 26 i just gotten married didn't even have kids when when i began i uh, one of the things that would be most frustrating is when people when i'd be counseling parents and and uh, couples and for them to look at me and say well you know have you ever been divorced can you relate to what i'm going through and uh, have you ever had an addiction? And have you ever had a kid and, and know what my kid, can you, can you relate to what my kid has done? And, and what they're really asking when they ask questions like this, or what they're really saying when they, when they challenged me in this way, is you have no idea what it's like to be in my shoes. So how are you supposed to help me? And when that happens, my response would typically be like no. You know what? Honestly, I don't know what it's like to be divorced. I didn't come from a divorced family, but I do know what it feels like to have your world fall apart. No, I've never been abused and I've never had that done to me, but you know what? I do know what it feels like to be betrayed by someone you love. And For those of you who aren't in counseling and aren't in the field and so I call this, it's like finding what you try to do is you find a reference point and build a bridge because there's a tendency for a number of us to hide behind this wall of no one can understand me and no one can understand the situation that I'm in. And when people retreat to that wall, oftentimes what they're doing is they're saying, because no one else, because you can't understand me, you can't understand the situation I'm in, I'm protecting myself from having to change and protecting myself from having to get help. And what Jesus has done when he was word become flesh is to create a reference point and to remove that excuse from our repertoire. Jesus lived among us, experienced life as you and I do, so that you might understand that Jesus does have a reference point from which he can relate and empathize with whatever it is you happen to be going through at any given moment of your life. And because he can, Jesus' love for you, Jesus' love for me, Jesus' love for us is both real and personal. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the author shares it this way For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So we don't have a God who can't sympathize and empathize with us. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Those are some powerful words. In a few moments, we're going to tackle our Q&A time, and I'm welcome. I, I'm excited about hearing whatever questions or comments or thoughts you guys might have based on what's been shared. And, and you know, I, I just want to say this, too. Sometimes I know we can get a bit derailed, and sometimes I get questions up here that have nothing to do with what was shared. Just if that's one of your questions, just kind of if you could avoid asking that, that would be great. Just come up to me afterwards. Um, but, yeah, if you have some question, thought, or comment related to what we've shared already, go ahead and text it to awakenq and at gmail.com, and I'm excited about tackling that. And as you're doing that, I want to close with this, this thought and this idea. The other reason why I think it's, uh, why I titled this, this sermon this morning, you know, Jesus' Illegitimate Son, um, I, I, I do think, I wanted us to kind of be able to see Jesus from a different perspective, from a different viewpoint. And I want you all to realize as well that the issue of Jesus' legitimacy has been a question, um, has been an issue that he's had to deal with even from the time that he was a young boy playing with friends out in the streets of Nazareth. Right? Every generation since that time has found some reason to question the legitimacy of Jesus. And by default, questioning the legitimacy of our Savior, and by default, questioning the legitimacy of our faith. Does God, does He really exist? Did Jesus actually exist? Was Jesus really God, or was he just a good, good man? Do you really expect me to believe that Jesus died on the cross and then rose from the dead seriously? Why is Jesus the only way Doesn't that sound arrogant with all the other gods and religions in the world? Over and over again, those are just our generations. Every generation has had their own questions, their own issues that challenge the legitimacy of Jesus. And I just want you to hear, this is nothing new. In fact, he dealt with it during the course of his own lifetime. And so when it happens even today... When sometimes those questions are asked and fired at us, and it's different, you know, if, if someone's asking because they're genuinely wanting to learn or because they're asking because they want to challenge your faith. And if it's the latter, then I just, my encouragement to you is when that happens, just don't get offended. This is the way it's always been and probably always will be until the day he returns. And on that day there will be a time when Jesus asserts his authority and every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So in other words, there will be questions about Jesus' legitimacy all the way until that time comes. And in that moment, his legitimacy will be established beyond a shadow of a doubt. And what does this mean for us? How does knowing God in this way affect us? Our legitimacy is tied to the legitimacy of Jesus. So I'm gonna go back and bring back last week a bit. He is the word, right? That's where we went last week. And for those of you who missed last week, I use this analogy of what that means, how that distinguishes Je- Is when we say Jesus is the word, it's kinda of like saying gravity is real, right? Jump off the Empire State Building, and it does not matter what your belief is or what your theology is about gravity you're still going to hit the pavement on your way down. Does that make sense? When you jump off the Empire State Building, what you believe about gravity has no effect whatsoever on what gravity is going to do to you. And what John is saying about Jesus being the word is God is God. Whether you believe in him or not, whatever your belief system is, he is going to do what God is going to do, and you're going to experience the consequences of it whether you believe in him or not. Your belief is irrelevant, in terms of defining who God is. But then where we've gone is from, that's where John was, and then we go to Mark this week and say, word become flesh. And the fact is that even though that is true, despite that truth, Jesus has come and said, even though I have nothing to prove to you, I'm stepping into time, I'm stepping into flesh to build a bridge so that you know I love you personally. So that you can understand that I get you and where you are, and I love you nonetheless. And I want to minister and care for you, broken and messed up, right where you are. And when you accept that your relationship with Jesus is legit, then you never have to question anything else ever again. Because your legitimacy now is not tied to who you are, but to who you love and who you are in relationship with. And that's the God of the universe, it's Jesus. He is your rock, and your place with him will never be shaken. So I want to close with this verse in John chapter 1 that hopefully be a comfort to you in those times when you're like, yeah, I do feel insecure. Yes, I do feel anxious. Man, I don't know if the things I'm going through, if God can even, in fact, I don't even know if God wants to see this and see who I am right now. I want you to remember these verses, John chapter 1, verses 10 to 14. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but from a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the fathers, one and only Son. Amen. Amen. All right. I got a couple minutes. So.